It's November 6, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ranozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Carl Fuchs from the Hawaii Strategic Development Corporation to tell us about the Proof of Concept Centers. Finally, we will talk about open source software and its application in education. We'd, of course, love your questions and insights as part of the conversation, so be ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, new findings announced Monday from NASA's four-year Kepler Space Telescope mission are described as ushering in a new era of astronomy with researchers from the University of Hawaii playing a key role in a remarkable conclusion. As many as one in five stars like our own sun have planets that are about the size of Earth and a surface temperature that could conceivably support life. That means there could be tens of billions of potential habitable Earth-sized planets in our Milky Way galaxy alone. The Kepler Space Telescope was launched in 2009 with the specific goal of finding planets around other stars. With 150,000 stars photographed every 30 minutes for four years, the NASA Kepler team reported more than 3,000 planet candidates. But many of them are large planets that are more comparable to Jupiter or are in orbits too close to their stars. To improve their results, the Keck telescopes in Hawaii were enlisted to gather spectroscopic data from as many stars as possible. Well, the research team narrowed their scope to 42,000 stars like our sun and found 603 planets orbiting them, and 10 of those were Earth-sized and far enough from their stars to be at a reasonable temperature. Andrew Howard, a faculty member at the University Institute for Astronomy, said in a statement for NASA, this discovery is really important because for, uh, future missions will try to take um, an actual picture of a planet and the size of the telescope they have to build depends on how close the nearest Earth-sized planets are. An abundance of, abundance of planets orbiting nearby stars simplifies such follow-up missions. Now, you know, the uh, University of Hawaii has been, uh, uh, you know, getting some good recognition for this because of, I've, I've been seeing this uh, not only in local press but uh, also on a lot of uh, national media. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, greater estimates of how likely it is to find planets that can support life and therefore, you know, demonstrate perhaps that we're not alone is, is big news that even the mainstream is interested in. And this uh, Kepler data, this massive amount of Kepler data, I mean, the Kepler space mission is essentially over. The the, the telescope is, bare, is, I think it's either I think it's decommissioned a, yeah, or, or malfunctioned right. to the point of not being repairable. But the volume that they can still go through, that they can still find things is is impressive. And in fact, they're just basically running better and better algorithms against previous you know methods used to identify planets and stars to get this information. Mm-hmm. And you know, we had reported uh, last week that they had found an Earth-sized planet that had a the high probability of a rocky surface. And, and this uh, release just came out that you know the actual numbers are far greater, and that the you know as they start to get better imaging capability, um, they may be able to de- not only detect the rock surface, but you know atmospheric surface uh, atmospheric uh, conditions. And, right. And hopefully they'll they'll find the you know the oxygen nitrogen combination, or maybe find other people looking back at us. But no. you know, they do admit that most of you know even though they're saying most stars might have planets. They may, even the ones that are in the Goldilocks zone might have too thick atmospheres and still be too hot or not enough of a surface to hold liquid water. But uh, again, we we are exoplanet, exoplanet palooza. Yep. <laughs> 
Hawaiian Electric announced yesterday that it is moving ahead with negotiations on six new renewable energy project proposals, in addition to three projects the utility engaged in June. This all while it awaits review by the Public Utilities Commission. Hawaiian Electric received 25 proposals in response to a call for ready-to-build, low-cost renewable energy projects on Oahu in February, and from that said, it selected five that had a combined capacity of 64 megawatts. Uh, But to expedite development, the utility asked the PUC to waive its competitive bidding requirements for each, noting that all final power purchase agreements would still need to be submitted for review and approval. While the waiver request is still pending, two of the selected projects dropped out, and Hawaiian Electric worked with providers not selected in the first batch to update and resubmit their projects, netting six new proposals. The aim is to secure 20-year contracts with an average energy cost of 15.8 cents per kilowatt hour. That's a third less than the prices currently paid to existing solar and wind energy providers and is competitive with the current cost of energy generated from oil. Hawaiian Electric Vice President Scott Sue said in a statement, We can't control the cost of oil, but we're accelerating the addition of more low-cost renewable energy resources. The good news is that the high level of competition in our market is continuing to bring lower prices that will benefit all consumers. Okay, so this is this is interesting because, you know, they've got proposals out for alternative energy solutions, and they're actually agreeing to buy back that at a reduced rate and reduce from what the comparable uh, um, petroleum rates are. And so that would perhaps indicate that maybe there's a, a stabilization of prices for people that you know are still buying electricity from the electric company. Right, but there's still volatility because two of the five that they initially selected dropped out even after they were willing to move forward. They get six more. I mean, it's still going to be uh, projects coming and going. What's interesting, of course, is that they're proceeding with these negotiations, determining what these contracts might be like even before the PUC has weighed in on whether they can skip the competitive bidding process which they require for any project over 5 megawatts. I think that that's an interesting thought because, of course, if, say, Haleiwa, a landowner there, wants to bid and create a project, it's not like there's multiple ways somebody could bid on that unless they all had access to that property. Right. So, yeah, it is somewhat geographically um, uh, specific because Mm -hmm. how many different kinds of solutions can you have on that Haleiwa property? But uh, the progress in Hawaii is great. I mean, they also reported uh, 35,000 installed photovoltaic systems. That's 260 megawatts of capacity and uh, pretty much first in the nation in terms of uh, solar watts and installations per customer. Yeah, and, you know, we're also watching, you know, how the um, sort of this neighbor island power requirement that might get fed to Oahu Mm -hmm. via the uh, power cable starts to uh, play out. And right now it seems like the neighbor islands aren't really that interested in Providing the power to you know to Oahu. Well, so. it's good to see a lot of this local work coming together. Well, yeah, I mean we're going to need that, right? Anyway, next up, nanotechnology has solidly transitioned from science fiction to science fact, but scientists and engineers are pushing the boundaries of material science even further. A UH professor has published a new book focused on pico technology. Klaus Sattler, whose previous six-volume handbook of nanophysics is a popular reference around the world, predicts the new uh, fundamentals of pico-science will find a similar global audience. A picometer is a trillionth of a meter, or 10 million times smaller than a human cell, which measures a comparatively massive 10 microns across. Sattler authored the 37-chapter book along with 72 contributors from 22 countries, Nanoscience has already led to major advances in inventions ranging from electronics and medicine to quantum mechanics. This 
Pico Science reference book highlights current instrumentation and experiments, including things like single atom switches and optical and neutron holography. Well, the publisher notes that current work in Pico Science probably won't see practical applications for the next 10 to 20 years. But as the author of the first book on the topic, Sattler notes in his foreword that we will one day have Pico Medicine, Pico Electronics, Pico Motors, and Pico Batteries. Sattler has been working at the UH Manoa since uh, 1998, and with his research group, he generated the first atomic-scale images of carbon nanotubes and produced the first nanocones, Fundamentals of Pico Science, with 769 illustrations throughout its 756 pages, is available in hard copy and digitally through Amazon.com. Now, you know, the price of this book is not something to sneeze at. $179 for the hardcover, or you can save money and pay only $143 to get it on Kindle. Still, it is kind of a, uh, it gives practical advice to researchers on how to determine which experimental technique to use in working with Pico technology. So I would imagine if you're playing with Pico technology, you might have a budget, one would hope, to buy this book. Well, you know, and, and of course, we're I guess uh, as far as companies in Hawaii, we're sort of just scratching the surface with nanotechnology, but, you know, this is like a whole order of magnitude smaller. Right. Well, I didn't know that the, you know, until researching it, it wasn't completely clear to me that Pico was smaller than nano, for example, that it's a thousand times below that. So you start thinking nano this, nano that, it's soon going to be Pico this and Pico that, and we're going to have to start studying those additional prefixes to as things get even smaller than that. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Speaking of small particles, by the way, Hawaii-based True Tag Technologies, which has earned international recognition for its innovative solution to fight the multi-billion-dollar problem of counterfeit goods, has picked a new manufacturing customer. Green Project Incorporated, based in California, specializes in recycling ink and toner cartridges. Under the new partnership announced last week, Green Project will mark its products using True Tag Microtags to ensure the protection of its brand and products worldwide. Well, Green Project says that uh, protecting the environment is one of its main corporate principles and notes that TrueTag's security platform involves biologically inert material that is not only non-toxic but but edible, enough to be used for food and medical products. Inkjet toner is not for eating, of course, uh, but brand um, brand name printer cartridges are notoriously expensive, costing about $88 per ounce, uh, more, more costly than imported Russian caviar. Green Project says TrueTag will be key to protecting its intellectual property. Company CEO Roy Fan said in a statement, With everything becoming globalized, we believe it is important to safeguard our inventions. We will utilize this technology to help monitor our supply chain and ensure our customers receive genuine product of the highest quality. TrueTag Technologies, led by inventor and entrepreneur Hank Wu, created dust-sized particles that can still contain millions of unique optical patterns that can be used to authenticate electronics, drugs, food, and other products. The company was named a technology pioneer earlier this year by the World Economic Forum. Well, yeah, this is interesting because uh, TrueTag, I mean, we've been kind of following TrueTag, and uh, their, their sort of main um, benefit was the fact that it was edible, so it could be used for drugs, and you could actually ingest them, and it would just pass through. But it's interesting that the you know Green Project would be using them for uh, printer cartridges. Well, I mean that's been the joke. You know, you spend so much. The printers are practically free as long as you're going to pay for this expensive uh, toner. Uh, this is a company that specializes in refilling or working with uh, cartridges for brand name uh, hardware. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting that they even feel that their toner technology, which in itself is going into uh, perhaps containers that were manufactured by someone else, they still feel that that's valuable enough to protect with this technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, next up, here's a couple of quick items we wanted to share with you. Tomorrow, the Pacific Business uh, uh, Pacific New Media presents Practical WordPress Beyond the Basics with WordPress, WordPress guru John LeBlanc. Topics will include social network integration, performance tuning, search engine optimization, custom theme development, and custom plugin development. The workshop will be held from 6 to 9 p.m. in the basement of Sinclair Library. For more information, you can visit outreach.hawaii.edu slash PNM. Also on the tech calendar on the Big Island, Hawaii Tech Works will hold its November Tech Tuesday monthly meetup on Tuesday, November 19th at their Rainbow Falls location in Hilo. Slated to present is Ted Shaneyfelt of the University of Hawaii Engineering Department, along with participants in its Design and Idea Sprint program. For more information on that event, you can go to hawaiitechworks.org. And now, here in the studio, patiently waiting, Carl Fuchs from HSDC, or the Hawaii Strategic Development Corporation, is here, and he's here to tell us about the Proof of Concept Centers. Welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks, Bert. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Well, thanks. And, you know, this is something new and uh, I think a, a new idea that uh, you're uh, helping to you know sort of share amongst the uh, community and primarily uh, over at the UH and of course we were talking a little bit about this Pico Science and that's sort of a, a uh, a research area that might result in some commercialization ten to twenty years from now, but these proof of concept centers what is the real the kind of the idea behind that Well, the idea behind that is a substantial amount of money largely from federal sources is invested in this long term research activity, mm-hmm. and the hope of uh, the federal government as well as the researcher and the community at large is the research yields some positive commercial applications that benefit society and and uh, the economy as a whole. Uh, So a proof-of-concept center is an entity that can reach into the university, identify readily commercializable technologies, and then bring them out, develop the concept, and find investors who then want to scale and build them and find commercial applications. So it's a completely different exercise than the research activity. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you bring up the Pico technology because uh, uh, an area that could be commercialized are the tools that are used in the research labs to conduct their experiments and to find uh, answers to the research they're doing. So often it's not just simply finding a new gadget, Mm -hmm. but these tools can also be commercialized, and people will license the tools to do research in their labs. Mm -hmm. Now, we've uh, we've also talked about the university and and higher education's overall uh, interest in trying to find a path to commercialization for the things that they're doing, and you mentioned there's some federal backing behind these proof-of-concept centers. I'm kind of curious, is this modeled after, or are we seeing successful implementations of things like this elsewhere that uh, Hawaii is following the lead in? Uh, so, Ryan, just to be clear, you know, the federal government is supporting proof-of-concept centers broadly as a concept, I see, I see. but in this particular case, you know, their money is not, not involved. They're, they are backing the research that's being done at these institutions, and so they have a strong interest and seeing a return on their research dollar. So that's where their interest is coming from. No, so our process at HSDC over the years is each year we try to identify an area of, of interest in our community and bring in interesting models from around the country of people who are attacking that problem and finding solutions. So this year our theme and interest is proof of concept centers, research commercialization. Mm-hmm. And we are bringing into Hawaii uh, three very interesting models of commercialization. So one is the Innovation Fund of America led by Lisa Delp. And this is backed by the Kauffman Foundation. And their idea is to go into the community colleges and develop programs with community colleges to find out what interesting things are going on there that could be commercialized and generate 
uh, new companies and revenue opportunities. And so this is something that I think we haven't really thought about here in Hawaii very much is, you know, we have a, a very strong community college network. A lot of interesting things happen. Uh, can we develop programs in that sector? So I thought it would be interesting to look at the community college side of commercialization. Uh, also, we're bringing in uh, Rosabel Ochoa from the uh, Von Liebig Center at the University of California at San Diego. This is one of the leading standard bearers of uh, research university commercialization. So that center is located within the School of Engineering and is geared to really support the activities of the university and integrate them into the business and commercial world. So they provide a window for industry to reach into the university and for the university to reach out to industry. Mm -hmm. But it's a university-centric model. And the final one is a company called Emergent Technologies, and Blair Duncan is coming out to talk about what they do. But they service three or four different universities, and they have a private sector approach. They have investors who capitalize a fund, and they seek out uh, partners within the university to identify research. And their model is to find corporate sponsors then on the other side and marry the two together to help fund a project, develop a commercial potential uh, technology, and then find investors to scale and grow it. Mm -hmm. So really three different ways of attacking a similar problem, and uh, it should be a very, very exciting discussion. Now, in the long term, is the Proof of Concept Center a facility or a location, um, like a laboratory or or, uh, um, an innovation center like perhaps we have in Manoa, or is it uh, something more more free-flowing than that? So this is uh, very uh, central to how HSDC is, is mobilizing our resources and investing in Hawaii. So we have looked at what we call venture accelerators as a key component of how we can get started in our community, uh, a startup company, investor capital, and uh, try to develop businesses that are able to in- attract and grow here in Hawaii. So the commercialization activity that takes place in a proof of concept center is very much like uh, a venture accelerator. There's a a competition, so to speak, to try to identify what are the best possible candidates for commercialization, then to select those, apply some mentorship, some team building around that, put a little bit of money to reach a milestone, demonstrate that that milestone was successful. If that's the case, invest a bit more capital to scale it to the next level. And if that milestone is met, then bring investors to come and pitch the idea to investors, and then hopefully that then spins out and becomes a company on its own. So a very similar process, a concentrated time frame, identified milestones, limited capital deployment, significant use of mentoring and community to help develop the, the project idea. Mm-hmm. So the uh, So the workshop itself is really to share the different models and try to get, the, I don't know if it's organizations that are already in Hawaii to start thinking about maybe bringing the right kinds of elements together to create this uh, proof of concept center. And then the next step would be to actually try to establish something. Correct. So as you know, uh, the university and other entities around the state have been very successful at getting federal dollars to pursue research. The struggle over the years has been how do we translate that research into commercial activity here in Hawaii. And, mm-hmm. you know, the proof is in how many startup companies we can get started, how many, you know, jobs get employed in these types of entities. So we've struggled on that aspect. So that's where the proof of concept center comes in. Because generally research entities are not good at the commercial development side. And we need to create this new entity that can, again, not focus on the research, but focus on the commercial applications, the structuring of a business around that technology. And so, yes, these are three different models. Uh, We think it would be very interesting for 
uh, not only the researchers but investors, our business community, and uh, importantly our policymakers to understand that you know, in most other regions around the world, these university commercialization activities are engines of mm-hmm. uh, innovation right. and economic development. Well, it does sound interesting. So this information session, where, when, and how can someone attend? So this will be November 14th. It starts at 2 o'clock. Uh, it'll last for about two to three hours. We have a reception afterwards. It'll be held at the Pacific Guardian Center on Bishop Street uh, near the corner of Bishop and Alamoana. A uh, very comfortable site. Uh, we, it's a small location. We wanted this to be intimate and a discussion-centered uh, uh, activity. Uh, there's 80 seats. Uh, we have about a little over 20 seats left. Uh, so we would encourage people to try to sign up, and they can reach uh, the sign-up sheet at our website, hsdc.hawaii.gov. Sounds good. Thanks, Carl, for joining us. No, thank you. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Paul McKimmy and... Ken Akawili, and uh, they'll be talking about implementing open source software in the schools. What are the benefits of open source software? What are the downsides? We, of course, love your questions as part of the conversation, so give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter. We're live, so you can tweet us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Mortgage lenders may tell you now is a great time to buy a home. However, the purchasing power is actually 10% less than it was uh, about 13 years ago. I'm Kai Rizdal. Keeping up with rising home prices next time on Marketplace. We'll have the rest of the day's business news and the numbers from Wall Street as well. It's from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Hawaii Public Radio kicks off its Atherton Studio winter season on Friday, November 15th. Travel back to Hawaii's golden era with the sweet sounds of the Bobby Ngano Trio. Seal guitar master Bobby Ngano teams up with Gary Aiko and Kaipo Asing. Friday, November 15th at 7.30 p.m. in HPR's Atherton Studio. For tickets, call 955-8821 during business hours. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa. And joining us today is Paul McKimmy and Ken Nagawili. Paul is the Director of Technology and Distance Programs over at the Manoa, UH Manoa College of Engineering since 2002. Education. College of Education. Did I say engineering? I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> thinking engineering. Uh, College of uh, Education. Uh, he was tenured faculty in educational technology and has taught a variety of courses for the department. Ken, meanwhile, is the vice principal at Kaimaki High School and previously the technology coordinator at Stevenson Middle School. He was the driving force be- behind open source software adoption there. And what are the key drivers behind an open source implementation? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine from the neighbor islands. Paul and Ken, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Bert. So let's uh, let's start, I guess, with something kind of basic, uh, and and maybe give us a, a quick um, perspective or your definition of what open sauce open <laughs> open open sauce. <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> like you know, like ketchup and show you. Um, open source software, what is your kind of definition of open source software? Well, open source software actually has a very specific definition, and it's uh, generated and maintained by the Open Source Initiative, which you can look up online mm-hmm. at uh, opensource.org. 
Uh, it's got 10 points to meet the definition, but sometimes that's a little confusing for people because just the availability of the source code doesn't necessarily mean it, that it meets their definition. And then free software is actually something different but substantially the same. And that definition is maintained by the Free Software Foundation. And we can go into that if you like. Well, you know, I think uh, we'll, st- we'll stick to open source because I think that's probably more germane to this topic. But as far as the open source community and talking about open source, so- open source software, uh, the source code is available. You can actually, you know, go to sites like uh, GitHub, fork a uh, code, work on it, develop it, enhance it and then make it available to the open source community as well. So anybody could download it and, and run it on their machines. I mean, that's kind of the community that, that exists out there. Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the components of that definition is the availability of the source code, mm-hmm. and the whole idea behind that is that it opens up the code behind any software that you're using to uh, community developers, uh, to partners that want to join, to folks who look at the software and say, this is almost what I want, but not quite. So let me either change it myself or maybe come uh, come to the table with a programmer who can help us mm-hmm, do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what makes it compelling, I think, for uh, enterprises. And then for individuals, of course, it's there's no charge behind it. It's also free because you can download it, you can compile it yourself, and a lot of times it's available on all platforms. So, I mean, open source is certainly something familiar to geeks, um, but I know that it's not as widespread. Now, Ken, we can uh, talk about uh, a lot of the good work that you're doing specifically with open source, but can you give us an idea more broadly over, say, the Department of Education? I mean, I know that uh, I kind of, my eyebrows kind of went up when my kids were learning how to use PowerPoint. And people might know, might know what PowerPoint is, but that is not open source software. It is not necessarily a skill that I felt was going to be relevant to them. But the fact of the matter is most consumer electronics, most software, even my lovely iPhone, these are not open source software. They're commercial software. And isn't that pretty much predominant in the education space? Yeah. I mean, what we're looking for is getting the technology into the hands of students. Um, you've got limited amount of money. But you've got an unlimited amount of donated and free and even cheap so- hardware out there. So being able to put on the um, free and open source software onto that, uh, not only it, the equipment runs better or faster, but um, now you don't have to worry about licensing issues. Um, and also it's just um, giving that the way of life to the students that you're not asking them to buy a, a $2,500 computer with you know another add-on $1,500 software and having, the, having them go home to their parents and saying, hey, can, I, can we get... Um, this $4,000 computer and not able to um, afford it rather than going home and say, hey, we've got this old um, computer sitting around. Uh, Can we load um, the open source software? And um, we now have open access, free access to all um, for all students. Now, Paul, at the higher education level, um, I would think, I mean, maybe I just think more highly of uh, my peers, for example, at the University of Foy and maybe their awareness of these things. But uh, are you still a black sheep in those uh, hallowed halls in terms of advocating open source, free, publicly accessible software? Or uh, does Microsoft and Apple still dominate? Well, definitely uh, Microsoft and Apple still dominate. But I'm not the only one who's uh, an open source advocate uh, in higher ed or even in K-12. Uh, I've got colleagues who use all operating systems, including open source operating systems. We distribute LibreOffice as an alternative to Microsoft Office with all of the faculty and staff computers that we use at the college. Uh, We've even implemented Ubuntu Linux in some of our computer labs where the students drop in and use them. 
and they've adapted pretty nicely to that. We, we've got Apple computers sitting right next to them, but uh, we're starting to implement open source more uh, in the computers that our faculty and staff are using, but we use almost entirely open source on the infrastructure for the college. Mm -hmm. So uh, Servers and Absolutely. Networking. In fact, uh, recently we've implemented a complete OpenStack uh, cloud infrastructure uh, just for College of Education, and uh, that's been extremely flexible and kind of a neat project. Now, you know, Ken, you, you had said something in your statement that uh, in the environment in the sort of the K-12 and, and uh, where you work, there's a lot of uh, freely available or very low-cost hardware. So that might be a, a abundant resource. And, and maybe I'm, I'm you know, mistaken when I hear about schools, you know, getting a boatload of computers and, you know, maybe iPads or a variety of different uh, new equipment. Correct me if I'm wrong, or, or maybe you can shed some light on the situation. Is it more predominant that you're able to access low-cost hardware than it is for the schools to get sort of brand-new uh, computers? Well, right now, you know, you're, you're as a principal, you know, they, they go to their tech coordinators and they say, um, I need 100 computers. Mm -hmm. And then the tech coordinator will come back and say, it's going to cost you $120,000, $130,000. And so the principal says, okay, um, can we get it down to, whittle it down to about $25,000, $30,000? And so now you end up with 30 computers, 25 computers. And so instead, um, what, what, what we were trying to do is just saying that we, we, when you come with 100 computers, Here's a $30,000 price tag, and it's a much more manageable um, um, number to be mm -hmm, working with. Mm -hmm. Also, when you get private donors that come in and say, hey, I've got $30,000, and um, wh how much do you want? I mean, how many computers can you get? And you show them a lab of 30 versus you show them a lab of 100 or um, 30 computers in three different classrooms. Much more impressive and, and uh, much more going towards something that they wanted to do was more of a school-wide um, and, and widespread use of te technology. Mm -hmm. We're so, talking, oh, sorry. We're talking to Paul McKimmy and Ken Aguili about open source software, its applications in education or teaching tomorrow's educators. If you've got a question or a thought on this trend, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Paul, I played with Linux and Ubuntu. I even, you know, Red Hat and dual booting software. And when mm -hmm. I had all the time in the world, all the time I in was the world. <laughs> playing <laughs> right. with all of that stuff. But I admit that I got a little lazy. And also, of course, open source software is constantly evolving. And one of the dings that people try to throw at it is it's not as clean or elegant or it takes more maintenance and there's not the fancy Microsoft support plan that's going to let someone answer the phone 24 hours a day to help you. Um, is that still the case? I mean, in, in your uh, real-world application of this software, uh, does anybody ever feel the way that I did t 10 years ago, throwing my hands up in the air going, I have no idea what this kernel thing is, I quit? Yeah, I think Linux, uh, the, uh, the whole group of operating systems that are based on Linux has a bad reputation for being only for geeks, but uh, I teach a course on open source software in education and for educators, and uh, one of the things I always tell them is, look, I'm not a programmer, and I'm really not a technical expert. I'm uh, an advanced user maybe and an advocate for this because I see a lot of benefits uh, for educational use, including driving the cost down, but also breaking the issue of vendor lock where we've got external companies that are calling the shots on how we use technology in the schools. And also the fact that the development behind open source is really a lot more consistent with the values 
that our educational institutions espouse, uh, equity and uh, community and collaboration, all of those things are baked into the development process for open source software. So uh, despite this reputation for being kind of a geeky area to work in, the, the more recent derivations of Linux are really very elegant looking. I would uh, have anybody take a look at Ubuntu. Uh, a lot of people who sit down in our drop-in student lab probably assume that it's a tweaked version of OS X and don't even question it when they fire up LibreOffice because it really looks like Office 2013 uh, before we implemented or we were subjected to, I would say, the ribbon interface <laughs> that almost nobody wanted. Uh, some people tell me they like it now, but back when it was implemented, they said, no way. Um, so yeah, Linux Mint uh, is another uh, Linux distribution that is very nice looking, very clean looking. Uh, they get regular system updates. And, and to your question about how much time and energy it takes to maintain them, that's actually one of the reasons for adoption of Linux in the enterprise because what people are finding is that there are so many fewer issues with maintaining a Linux operating system as opposed to Windows specifically, and there are other, uh, I would say, enterprise considerations with OS X. Uh, they're seeing 40% total cost of ownership drops primarily based on the technical support required. And the licensing costs, which are essentially zero, are yet another factor to mm -hmm. consider, but mm -hmm. they're actually not even the primary reason that enterprises adopt it. You know, speaking to the t support, I will say, when was the last time you called 1-800-Microsoft? Usually you're <laughs> hiring a third party to come in and, and help you out. And whenever you talk to the third party guys, usually they're, they are running Linux. It is, like Paul was saying, it's a geeky thing. And a lot of the third parties are geeks, so they, they know Linux. And so um, support is out there. Um, Google is, is a good friend for, you know, just Googling my problem. And Ask Ubuntu and Ubuntu.com gives you those support forums. You know, we're talking to uh, Ken Agawili and Paul McKimi, and we're talking about open source. And if you have a question about open source and are interested in perhaps implementing it, give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 1-877-941-3689. We want to welcome Todd from Kula to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. All right. Hey, Bert. Hey, Ryan. Great topic. Thanks, you guys. Sure. It wow. was probably uh, Ken and Paul that uh, impressed on us the importance of open source where uh, I was doing my UH program for special ed at Manoa a couple of years back. Oh, wow. And Good. Uh, it, they impressed on us how important it is for all public schools to not buy into this expensive software. If we have to re-up every four or five years for uh, Microsoft or others, we're spending thousands and thousands of dollars for all these units at a school we're not getting much of a deal on. Mm -hmm. So I, I really, truly appreciate uh, any open sourceware. So it's it's been a great thing for us, and I really wish all the public schools would adopt it. I appreciate your program, guys. Well, are you, uh, are you teaching there uh, over on Maui? I am, special ed, and just a couple of years out of UH Manoa. And you're using I think these it tools? probably was Ken that gave us all our software, and I'm still using uh, OpenOffice. Sounds good. Well, thanks for calling. Thanks, Bert. Thanks, Todd. So, really appreciate it, guys. Great show. Mahalos. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Todd, for calling. And so, Ken, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you, so as you describe the uh, scenario where you have somebody that says, hey, I got $30,000 I can give you, and and maybe uh, on on your side of it, you go, well, you know, so what can I get for 30000 Maybe I can get, you know, 100 of these um, uh, computers. Uh, would you be looking at... Um, maybe lower-cost computers or, or refurbished computers? And then at, at whatever time you decide what kind of hardware you're going to get, what is the process by which you start to load up 
Ubuntu or Linux or, or whatever operating system. Yeah, well, a lot of people, they ask me, well, you know, what, what um, brand do you usually buy? Mm-hmm. And I always go, I go to um, the vendor and I say, what's the cheapest netbook or 11.6-inch screen you can get me? And that's the one I buy. You know, uh, just $20 makes a huge difference per machine. And if I can get it down to as cheap as possible, um, even if it has to be refurbished, open box things, those are the ones that we buy. Mm-hmm. And so when it does come to us, um, we've been lucky that with Windows 8, um, a lot of the hardware has to be more expensive running 4 gigs of RAM versus Ubuntu can still run well, great, on 2 gigs of RAM. So the vendors are now selling um, hardware with Ubuntu already com- you know, coming through the door. But we still have to take it out of the box, and we put our own image on there. And um, that's pretty much the, the process is we get it out of the box, put our image on there, and then we're able to deploy right away. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the stories that you hear periodically, for example, the LA School District deploying all these uh, fancy iPads and uh, with controls on them, but kids finding a way to get past them and visit all the websites their parents don't want them to visit. Um, from a, from an educator standpoint, when these tools are put in uh, students' hands, does open source mean that it's easier to get around any controls you might put in place or actually harder? Well, actually, I think the the whole open source um, community and the, the 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 philosophy behind it is not to not to lock things down, mm-hmm. not to try and prevent students from going to these things, but giving them education and letting them know that what's right, what's wrong, what's what's good, what's bad, and 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 self regulate themselves, because um, you know the more regulation that you try and put onto them, you know the more they're going to try and fight to get through it, um, <laughs> versus you know just just saying um, you know. Hey, this this is this is something very powerful that you can use, and you can use it for good. You can use it for bad. Let's 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 try and do things to use it for good and, and make the world better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if I could comment on that sure, too, sure. I, the security and restrictions that you need mm-hmm. to apply in an educational environment—they're not all based on the operating system. True. So True. a lot of that comes from your network configuration, and there are also. Uh, uh, screening programs available for Linux uh, distributions, so you can go on and put on Net Nanny or a couple of other ones, and and uh, you're available to, to tweak that to your needs also. Well, mm-hmm. I can tell you, as a parent of three, it's essentially an arms race in terms of who can advance to the next level <laughs> uh, faster. <laughs> so I agree that, and you know, uh, I've even been called out on Twitter for giving my kids much wider access to the internet and even social media than most people feel is prudent. But I think that I would rather teach them to be responsible users of that technology rather than yeah. blocking. IPs. Um, can you tell us a little bit more, uh, Paul, about the, the the licensing site you mentioned, Vendor Lock-In? Mm-hmm. And I certainly remember what made GIMP, which is a photo editor, attractive to me is the fact that it was free, whereas Photoshop was $700. Um, and now you have software vendors moving to a subscription model where they're not going to charge you $800 to use Microsoft Word, but they're going to charge you 20 bucks a month for the rest of your natural life. That makes avoiding that even more attractive to me. So uh, you mentioned LibreOffice. I mean, have you done kind of specific cost comparisons in terms of how much someone is saving by choosing the open source path? Sure. I can just give you a personal example. I think my father, my mother, my wife, my daughter, and myself uh, use LibreOffice. Uh, you know, we all started at various times, but so far I've managed to avoid having uh, Microsoft's 2007, 2010, and 2013 versions that's about $350, $400 uh, that would have come out of my own pocket. And if you multiply that times the number of my family members, you can get an idea of how much just uh, adopting LibreOffice has saved mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. But then there are other considerations, too. You know, I, I started using open source uh, exclusively back around 2008. And I did that because I wanted to demonstrate to other educators that it's totally possible to get this done in a proprietary-influenced uh, technology environment. And... 
So I've not had to uh, upgrade my personal machines with newer versions of Windows. And you mentioned GIMP. My students in the open source class are doing that this week. Uh, they're installing GIMP and they're going through a couple of tutorials. There's, there are a ton of open educational resources specifically for that package, and they're going to have some fun this week uh, creating a picture of themselves holding a lightsaber as one of their uh, assignments. sample assignments. Yeah. I'll yeah. look for that on Instagram. Well, yeah, that's yeah. good. We wanna, I want to <laughs> talk more about you know, the kinds of applications you might load on top of uh, you know whatever operating system you, you decide to go with. We'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Paul McKimmy and Ken Nagawili about implementing free and open source software in the classroom. What are some of the support requirements or training requirements for open source software? We'd, of course, love to hear your recommendations on the best packages to use or perhaps some to avoid. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. No cell in your 100 billion cells in your brain is, it in a neuron? is having a thought. If you took your neuron out and lay it on the table, could you see the bit of the thought that's in that neuron? But together they are. No, it's not in the neuron. Together they're falling in love or, or wanting to write music. So who's in there? This week on Radiolab, we look at the leaderless logic of ants, cities, Google, even your own brain. Who's sitting inside the head of the person sitting inside my head? Saturday morning at 10. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Margaret Wheatley, author of So Far From Home. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how we can be warriors for the human spirit. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Paul McKimmy and Ken Akuili. And, of course, uh, what are some of the applications more conducive to open source software implementations uh, compared to some of the proprietary options? And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or from the neighbor islands at one 877 and, you know, we were going to talk a little bit about applications. We were talking about LibreOffice. And, you know, we want to make clear that it doesn't have to run on an open source or like a, a Linux or an Ubuntu uh, operating system. I and mean, it could run on OS ten or other Windows applications. So tell me, uh, what are some of the applications that are most, um, uh, let's say, frequently installed, frequently used by the classroom? Well, I think the... There are a lot of them that are very well known. So a lot of people use the Firefox web browser. Right. That's an open source web browser. Mm -hmm. They may not even be aware of it, but it's uh, developed by the Mozilla Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, we teach uh, how to use Zotero, which is a citation management add-on for Firefox. Uh, we are introducing LibreOffice specifically to students because that's really the low-hanging fruit. I mean, if you want to try this out, uh, you can download LibreOffice for any of the prime operating systems, OS X, oh, yeah, any derivation of Windows, any derivation of Linux. They're all going to have a LibreOffice available to them. And in there, there is uh, essentially a clone of PowerPoint, a clone of Excel, a clone of uh, Word. The interface is like... Microsoft's product used to be in 2003. It's so, not It's not sexy, so but it Excel, works. So Excel, you said Excel. I mean, does it support things like pivot tables? Absolutely. It has pivot tables. You are such a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I sat in on a, a conference at uh, AECT last week where they were talking about uh, 
visualization of data, and one of the things that he introduced was conditional formatting. So if you've got this giant spreadsheet of numbers and you want to visualize, uh, say, a, a number range, what, how many of these numbers are between 10 and 15, you can do conditional formatting and colorize them. Right, so you right. can just visually see what that big uh, layout looks like. And I said, you know, that works in LibreOffice Calc also. So mm-hmm. I, can see a lo- I can see a lot of data nerds uh, really getting excited about that. Now, Ken, one of the things that uh, uh, a lot of times when you hear about open source and advocates and evangelists, um, a lot of people might feel that it could be an either-or. I mean, you see that even in the proprietary side where um, Apple fans and Google fans are just fighting it out on forums all day with nothing better to do with their lives. Uh, but you have to deploy these open source tools alongside some of these proprietary systems, and you find a way to get them to get along, don't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, getting back to the the sheet or the calc, um, you know, when, you, when you're talking about uh, pivot tables and um, you have multiple worksheets and when you're using Excel and you're using VLOOKUP, those types of formulas, it starts to get bogged down. And what's weird about the calc is some, for some reason it doesn't get bogged down. And so when you have multiple worksheets trying to look up um, um, values and trying to combine the spreadsheets together, you don't have those um, typical um, slowdowns that you see. Now, working alongside other proprietary systems, um, definitely within the, within the environment, it doesn't it doesn't hurt the network. I think that's <laughs> that's something that some, someone has told me before that the, the wireless with Ubuntu gets um, bogs it down more. Um, it doesn't at all, and um, you know you, you you work it works it, it works seamlessly in there. Like I always tell people, people don't even know that um, we're running Ubuntu at Stevenson. We're running Ubuntu at these other schools. It's just something that works most of the time. They're just going into the web browser, and no one ever sees the the actual desktop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're talking to uh, Ken Agawili and Paul McKimmy. We, we're talking about open source, and we've got a couple of calls that are lined up. And if, of course, if you've got a question about open source. Get in the queue. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one 941 3689 want to welcome Mike from Mililani to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hello. Yes, I'm curious about photo editing software. I currently use Adobe Photo Elements, and I'm wondering, does that run on open source software, or what is, is there something comparable? Okay, thanks. I think I, I think I got that. So uh, the question is, uh, they, they're using Photoshop Elements, and they're asking if there is an open source version that might be comparable to that, that application. Yeah, there are actually three big uh, open source uh, graphics editing packages. One of them is Blender, and that's used for 3D modeling. Uh, another one is the GIMP, which is what we just mm-hmm, talked about, mm-hmm. and that's the one I would recommend for anybody trying to replace Photoshop GIMP. or Photoshop Elements. And, it, and it's an unfortunate acronym, but it stands for the GNU Image Manipulation Program. Mm-hmm. And you can just uh, Google that, and you'll you'll find it pretty readily. I'm trying to think what the third one is off the well, top of my head. For vector graphics, it's, it's uh, Inkscape. Yes, Inkscape. And that's Inkscape. You know, but a very um, lightweight, um, you know, doesn't get bogged, again, doesn't get bogged down by... Um, by too much bloat. Well, certainly if you're using, and I remember using Photoshop Elements because it was the affordable version of Photoshop, but if you want the power and abilities that the full version did without paying the $600 price or the 30 buck a month now subscription price, I think GIMP is a good place to start mm-hmm, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that subscription is a big deal in the educational market too. Yeah. The, the software companies don't just want you to buy a license now. They want a piece of your, they want a line item in your budget forevermore. Right, right. Well, thanks, Mike, for calling in that the question. Susan, we have Susan on the line from the Big Island. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you very much. Sorry I'm on the side of the road, so there's a lot of traffic. I tried to close my windows, so it's still going on. <laughs> well, I'm glad um, you safe. pulled over. So yes. I'm yeah. a first-time caller, and I just want to say great program. I listen to you all the time. Thank you. Um, and I really appreciate 
this program on open source because I think even uh, there are there's a lot of people that don't even know about open source. So talking about it is always good, and I really appreciate um, bringing the educational side of the house into it because I am very anti having this monthly subscription and seven hundred dollar price tags. It becomes very elitist, mm-hmm. and um, I'm very against it. So uh, they, they've already made enough money, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, I, my my question is for the people that aren't total geeks. I I come from a computer science background, but my I've I've walked away from it back in 2002. So now it's I'm I'm always kind of catching up on my home machine with things, and I've rejected upgrading my Microsoft Windows since Vista. So I missed all of the good versions, and I've been on this awful platform forever. So I've been wanting to go to Linux, but I haven't. I don't. I don't even know what steps I want to take anymore. Uh, for the non-total geeks, do we? Can we run the, these? I mean, I heard something about running these um, operating systems in parallel, but can you do it on the same machine, really? And you know, what what should I do to go to Linux and start using these uh, GIMP, for example? Right. That that is a great question because I'm dying to hear the answer, Ken. Can you uh, sort of shed some light? Okay, so I got this machine. Well, Susan's got this machine. She's got, you know, like Windows Vista on it, which is a terrible operating system. <laughs> but you want, Okay, so, so now you want to, um, let's say, uh, load it up with Ubuntu or Linux. What is the first thing you, you do? Do you go out to the store and buy Linux, or where do you, do you download it? What, what, do you, what do you do? You can go to Ubuntu.com, okay. um, download the latest version, um, put it onto a USB stick or burn it to a CD. And then you um, just boot to the CD, and you'll have a nice um, graphic interface that will ask you, do you want to have your Ubuntu um, version run alongside XP? And that's called dual booting. And you just follow the steps, and within 30, 40 minutes, you'll have uh, a nicely running computer with two separate um, booting environments. It will come up with a menu when you first start up, and it'll say, do you want to boot to Windows Vista, or do you want to boot to Ubuntu? And so when you um, go to Ubuntu, you'll, you'll come up and everything will pretty much be loaded for you. Firefox, um, um, basic um, word processing, LibreOffice should be on there, and you'll be ready to go. What I always give people um, some advice on is if you don't feel too secure with your, um, um, with your Windows um, install, you know, you might have some malware running in the background, you can always boot to your Ubuntu to do your banking uh, to do your things that you think that might someone might be looking over your shoulder mm-hmm. on. So you can run dual boot for a number of reasons, not just to get away from Vista, but to uh, use different network connections and different software to kind of isolate it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I dual boot the laptop that I use, and it's running Windows 7 and Ubuntu on it. And the reason is because every now and again I find something that will only run on Windows, and I have to get to a Windows computer. I, I boot into Windows so infrequently that I have to go through half an hour of updates before I can actually use it. But one of the nice things about that dual boot is that Ubuntu is so lightweight compared to Windows that it takes almost no space on your hard drive. Windows, when you uh, install a basic Windows 7 uh, installation, it takes 16 gigabytes on your hard drive. And when you run the updates, it goes up to 27. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ubuntu takes four and a half. And that includes LibreOffice and a lot of uh, software that you already want to use. The basic Windows installation includes nothing. Okay. So hopefully that helped uh, you get up the nerve to make the leap. And you might find, even though you do a dual boot, you will spend more time on the Ubuntu. Side. Yeah. Well, thanks, Susan, for calling in hey, uh, that question. Thank you so much, too. And I'd be interested in um, some open sourced around um, uh, website development like the Drupals and all of that in the future. 
Ah, excellent question. Yeah, excellent. maybe we'll touch on that topic uh, right now. <laughs> Thanks for your okay, call. Okay, great. Sure. So, yeah, in terms of, uh, you know, we we love things like uh, WordPress, but uh, maybe you guys can comment a little bit about some of the web open source uh, applications that you might want to Sure. Um, Our college share. website is mm-hmm. built on Drupal 7. Uh, I have a team that I work with uh, called the Distance Course Design and Consulting Group, and we have a lot of expertise on there. They build uh, course websites in WordPress, and uh, they've also built things in Joomla in the past. So all of those uh, well-known content management systems for building websites, those are open source. We even, uh, our team has contributed some of the plugins to uh, Drupal and WordPress because as we develop things and realize that something doesn't do quite what we need, uh, our programmers can either continue development of or implement development of something to plug into Mm -hmm. it. and if you know if you guys want to have a show on those, I can recommend some people to. We come have a lot of good. we have a lot of love for WordPress early on the show and uh, uh, Drupal development. Now, Ken, um, at perhaps at the K to twelve level, do you do a lot of um, web based tools in terms of open source there? Well, I think if you want to start today, you could on your Windows machine um, load up, I guess, OpenBox or some virtual machine. Um, um, virtual thing, box. Virtual yeah. box, and um, go to TurnkeyLinux.com and download their um, images that come there, and you'll have an instant Drupal machine ready to go configured, and all you have to do is um, look at the um, web address, the IP address, and you can um, administer it through a web browser. Mm -hmm. And they have many different things, uh, WordPress, um, Drupal. You have, um, uh, what is that, OpenCloud right now. That's real hot. That's going on right now. Sounds good. You know, I want to uh, bring in uh, Claire from Kaneohe, uh, as uh, she's been patiently waiting. I want to welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi. Hi. My, my son is a very major geek. Good. And, <laughs> um, sorry, hold on a second. He, he got me switched over to Open Office several years ago. And I used that for a long time. But I, the big problem that I had was that I couldn't send things to people who only had Windows based and weren't geeky enough to figure out how to open it with another program. I see. I would send a resume out. People would say I couldn't, they couldn't open it. Oh, I see. Okay. So what the, do you know what the uh, extension of that file was? I don't remember. <laughs> well, I think I know exactly I what you yeah. ODT or something right. like okay. that. Right. Okay. Absolutely. I'd love to field that one. Uh, sure. So really the issue uh, that people run into most frequently when they adopt LibreOffice, which, by the way, is a fork of OpenOffice. OpenOffice still exists, but LibreOffice is a little bit fresher derivation. Uh, the common issue is that LibreOffice uses an open format, which is open document format, and it's by default an ODT extension when you save a text file. Right. Uh, Microsoft Office has its own proprietary mm-hmm. file format. So the right. the old one used to be .doc. The newer one is .docx. Mm-hmm. I could have a half an hour conversation with you about whether .docx is actually an open format or not. But the reality is that it has, uh, in some cases, difficulty translating the perfect formatting. I think .doc actually translates a little bit better. So what I usually tell people is, ODF is really important if you care about the longevity of your documents. I used the example of my doctoral dissertation that I wrote long ago before either one of those word processors was around. It's in a proprietary format. I can't open it with anything. Uh, Some people wouldn't care about how long it lasts. If it's good for a year, it's okay with them. But if you want to share a document with somebody that's using Microsoft Office, my recommendation is to either convert it to a PDF if they don't need to 
uh, edit it directly or save it as a .doc, which tends to translate pretty well. And you can do that directly out of LibreOffice. Absolutely. There's a single button, uh, one-click convert to a PDF. You can even uh, just go to the file menu and say send as and choose PDF. It'll attach it using your default email client, and you're good to go. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. So I hope that helps you and perhaps brings you back to uh, give it a shot again. I, I do think that it does interoperate much better now than it might have. Yeah. I actually know a little bit more now than I did at the time that I got frustrated with it. Um, but then I ended up buying a new computer, and I just said, oh, well, what the heck, it came with Windows Office, and I haven't converted back yet. Well, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. So, you know, I, I think uh, one of the things that I think a lot of the you know, listeners might be interested in, I, I'm, I'm interested in, is that you've, you've shared a number of different open source uh, applications that you folks are very familiar with. I mean, is there some place that, that uh, people can go to to find out more about, you know, let's say LibreOffice or maybe what, what you guys are supporting in the schools? Well, iClickFasterThanYou.com is my website, and you can always go there, and I have my latest updates that I'm doing. Well, say that, you say that so fast. It faster was, than, obviously I don't type as fast as you <laughs> click. Hold on. iClickFasterThanYou.com. Yeah. And this is your site, Kev? That's my site, and I keep that updated, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm doing with my current projects. I see. And how about you? Do you have uh, favorite resources? Yeah, let me list three of them. Oh, one, sure. is, one is OSS Watch. And that is based in the U.K., but essentially they will provide a giant table of alternative uh, open source software to the common packages that people are looking for in an educational environment. Mm -hmm. You can also look at uh, schoolforge.net, which provides some reviews on uh, common software that might be used in education. And then there's SourceForge, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a a common one for uh, the wider variety of open source software. But while I've got the mic, let me also mention uh, the course that I've been teaching on free and open source software and education. Anybody's welcome to come in and take a look at that course. Of course, you don't get access to our learning management system unless you enroll through our educational technology department, but you're welcome to the content. And uh, you can reach that by going to tinyurl.com slash class, F-O-S-S class. Fantastic. I, I think this was a great show. I mean, we're sitting here with our fancy Apple notebooks, but I want to dual boot these right away as soon as I get home. Oh, okay. <laughs> that sounds adventurous. Well, Paul McKimmy is with the UH College of Education, and Ken Nagawili is vice principal over at Kaimuki High School. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank All you. Right. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about monitoring weather with Doppler on wheels. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Or you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a favorite band of mine, the Cranberries, with a song called Perfect World. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.